This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are in Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomela Lezondi with Onelentinti with Sene Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Sharp reaction from Kenyan President criticism of the judiciary. The BRICS group of five major emerging economies call for a reform of the United Nations in economics. Acacia Mining says it will stop underground work at its flagship Tanzanian gold mine. And in sports, the second leg of the 2018 Africa World Cup qualifiers underway. Here's on Lentinti. Thank you, Spoo. The United Nations has accused the government of Burundi of crimes against humanity and urged the International Criminal Court to urgently open a case. Investigators appointed by the Human Rights Council have described the climate of fear in the Eastern African country. A UN report details widespread abuses including executions, forced disappearances, torture and sexual violence. Burundi was thrown into a political crisis in 2015 when President Pierre Nkurunziza decided to run for a third term after 2,000 people have since been killed. Kenya President Uhuru Kenyatta and his principal political opponent, Rayla Odinga, have started a vigorous campaign in various parts of the country to persuade the electorate to vote for them. This and fresh uh, presidential elections to be held at a date yet to be announced by the Electoral Commission. The campaigns come at a, f- at a time when the country's magistrate and judges association have expressed its anger at President Uhuru Kenyatta's description of six Supreme Court judges as crooks. The description follows the nullification of Kenyatta's re-election by the judges, James Shimanyula has more. Even before Kenya's Electoral Commission announces a date for fresh presidential election, President Uru Kenyatta and the veteran opposition leader Raila Odinga have hit the campaign trail to woo voters. The Electoral Commission has not announced a date for the election, apparently waiting to read the Supreme Court's verdict that nullified the re-election. The verdict sharply criticized the commission for allowing illegalities and malpractices to occur in the election. The repeat of the election has riled Uhuru Kenyatta, who directed his anger at David Maraga, the chief judge of the Supreme Court. A 2014 judgment that sent South Africa's Mpumalanga province timber tycoon Lloyd Mabuza to prison for eight life terms has been held by the High Court in the capital Pretoria after it dismissed his appeal. The landmark sentence is the harshest ever handed down to human, for human trafficking in South Africa and marked the culmination of a two-year-long trial that highlighted cross-border human trafficking of underage Mozambican children for sexual exploitation. 65-year-old Mabuza of White River was found guilty of multiple counts of rape. 
U.S. President Donald Trump has decided to end a popular program that shields hundreds of thousands of young undocumented immigrants for deport- from deportation. However, he has deferred its enforcement for six months to give Congress time to come up with a replacement program. Former President Barack Obama had put the program into effect in 2012 and allowed an estimated 800,000 undocumented immigrants to stay in the country for a renewable two-year period to study or work if they had come to the U.S. before they were 16. Trump, whose anti-immigrant rhetoric helped propel him to the White House, made ending the program a top campaign promise. And lastly, the United Nations Security Council is about to hold an emergency meeting to discuss North Korea's latest nuclear test. The five permanent members of the council have all condemned the detonation that they deeply but they are deeply divided as to how to respond. Arriving for the meeting, the French ambassador Francois Delach said the northern Niger- North Korean threat rather, had changed rapidly in scale and scope and a firm response was needed. The Trump administration has warned that overwhelming military force remains an option, but China and Russia say that would be a disaster. Earlier, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Gaong Chuang said Beijing had used diplomatic channels to to convey its opposition to the test. Whenever North Korea holds a nuclear test, it's always a mistake, violating UN Security Council resolutions and going against the general wish of the international community. China is resolutely opposed to it. The Chinese Foreign Ministry has already lodged formal representations to the person in charge of the North Korean embassy in Beijing. Channel African News, I'm on a Thanks, Anneli. Your time is 17.06 Central African time. Right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. In Kenya, President Uhuru Kenyatta and Raila Odinga, his principal political opponent, have started vigorous campaign in various parts of the country to persuade their electorate to vote for them in fresh presidential elections to be held at a date yet to be announced by the Electoral Commission. The campaigns come at a time when the country's magistrates and judges Association has expressed its anger at President Uhuru Kenyatta's description of six Supreme Court judges as crooks. The degrading and disparaging description followed the nullification of Kenyatta's re-election by the judges. James Shimanyula reports. Even before Kenya's Electoral Commission announces a date for fresh presidential election, President Uhuru Kenyatta and the veteran opposition leader Raila Odinga have hit the campaign trail to woo voters. The Electoral Commission has not announced a date for the election, apparently waiting to read the Supreme Court's verdict that nullified the re-election. The verdict sharply criticized the Commission for allowing illegalities and malpractices to occur in the election. The repeat of the election has riled Uhuru Kenyatta, who directed his anger at David Maraga, the chief judge of the Supreme Court. Maraga, don't interfere. And don't think that because our friends shout and we keep quiet, that we are scared of you. No, we are not. We are not. You've done your ruling, we have respected it. Let IABC do their job. Let them declare the date. And Raila, let us meet at the ballot. We are not bothered with court. We don't care. We have nothing to hide. 
All we want is for the will of the people to prevail. As if Kenyatta's verbal attack on Kenya's chief judge was not enough, Deputy President William Ruto downgraded the supremacy of the Supreme Court. We want to know whether who is supreme. Is it the supreme verdict of the Supreme Court or the supreme will of the people of Kenya? With the barrages of verbal attacks unleashed against Chief Judge David Maraga, without adducing concrete evidence adding duale the majority leader in Kenya parliament and the number three strongman in the country's ruling hierarchy, accused the Supreme Court's chief judge of plotting to place Raila Odinga in the presidential post. We knew that plan. There was a deliberate plan strategy to install Raila Odinga as the president of the Republic of Kenya by the judiciary. And it was finalized by none other than the chief justice. Although Chief Judge Maraga has not responded to the verbal attacks made against him by Kenyatta and Ruto, the Secretary General of the Kenya Magistrates and Judges Association, Brian Haemba, has done so, bringing to light the Kswahili word wakora, meaning crooks, which Kenyatta used to characterize the six members of the Kenya Supreme Court. The President of this country referred to the President of the Supreme Court and the other judges as wakora. He asked the political class to desist from personal profiling of judicial officers who are engaged in their constitutionally ordained duties. And Kuru Akwot, a losing presidential candidate and one of Kenyan lawyers who in 2010 played a pivotal part in preparing the country's current constitution, argues that the vicious verbal attack that President Kenyatta leveled against the Supreme Court has virtually diminished his integrity and leadership status. For a person who is currently president and seeking to be re-elected again as president, this is unbelievable and unacceptable. It shows his disrespect for other organs of the state and the judiciary in particular, but even more so disrespect for the people of Kenya because both the judiciary and the executive derive their authority from the people of Kenya. That was a Kuru Akwot, a losing presidential candidate, in Kenya. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Analysts believe that a decision by Kenya's top courts to invalidate their August 8 election victory by President Uhuru Kenyatta and order a new vote could positively reverberate across Africa and even beyond. Kenya's surprise court ruling last Friday came after longtime opposition candidate Raila Odinga alleged that last month's vote was manipulated. He challenged the results despite intense pressure from business leaders and others to concede defeat and let the country resume normal life. More from Peter Lingo, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in Kenya. There are two things about Kenya's judicial system. Uh, one is uh, the ability of the judiciary to assert its independence, and uh, two, the ability of the judiciary to protect and safeguard and uh, interpret the constitution. Uh, those are the two great things that uh, this decision says about the judiciary. And with the uh, courts ruling that you know elections should be held within the next 60 days, in your view, do you think the Electoral Commission is well equipped to handle fresh elections? 
Um, it's quite a short time indeed, uh, but uh, that is uh, the time that the Constitution allows. So it means that the Electoral Commission has to do everything possible to ensure that this is done within the constitutional uh, provided time frame of 60 days. There is no other choice. It has to just happen within the 60 days. So they must, uh, as of necessity, uh, begin early and do everything with speed to ensure that they meet the constitutional timeline. Otherwise, they will do a, get the country into a constitutional crisis. Just the fact that, you know, the court has ruled that, you know, fresh elections take place, what does it say about, you know, the pronouncements by some observers who declared that the August 8 elections were free and fair? I think uh, the thing about the observers uh, was that they only released their interim assessment, interim reports. Uh, and these were mainly speaking to the processes that they were exposed to on the election day on 8th of August. And that was uh, primarily the opening of the polling stations uh, to the closing and to the beginning of uh, counting. And therefore, they did not uh, confine their reports to the uh, totality of the counting and the processes after the counting. And many of them did uh, say that clearly in their reports, that they were only speaking to the processes that they were exposed to, and uh, they uh, knew very well that uh, this was still incomplete, and therefore, in their joint statement, uh, the servers made it clear that they wanted the remainder of the processes, which they were not exposed to, to be done in accordance with the law and uh, with uh, total credibility and integrity. And therefore, we need to look at their reports and assessments in the context of that. That one, these elections were, was partly manual and partly electronic, particularly in relation to the transmission of results. And then many of those observers did indicate very clearly that they did not have that technical capacity to effectively observe the electronic components of the elections, uh, namely the transmission of results. And therefore, they said, when controversies started to arise out of the transmission of results, many of them said that they did not have the capacity and they they were also not investigators to be able to speak to the electronic components of uh, the elections. And that is uh, exactly how their preliminary statements uh, should be seen and considered. And uh, the court is simply saying that, look, the process which uh, international observers were exposed to had no problems. And the court is saying so. It had no problems completely. It uh, was managed well. The process that was managed poorly, badly, and ineffectively with irregularities and illegalities was the counting and transmission of results. So um, this means that uh, in future, observers have to ensure that they have the necessary capacity to observe the entire process, including uh, the technical uh, electronic-based processes, and only issue their reports once they are uh, sure uh, beyond any doubt that, uh, look, the entire process, right from beginning to the transmission and declaration of results, 
is done well, is above board, is done within the law and as required by the Constitution, and that uh, the final declared results are a true reflection of the will of the people. And generally, what does this really mean for the continent as a whole? Are we likely to see a trend where African courts, you know, step in and change the course of an election? I think this is uh, what we need to start examining carefully uh, in terms of what this pertains for Africa, the continent. I think our courts have been quite reluctant to assert themselves in terms of maintaining, uh, protecting the Constitution, uh, particularly in relation to elections. Our courts in Africa have been reluctant to disturb electoral results, particularly uh, where they see numbers. So the approach has been rather a conservative approach where only numbers are considered and weight is given to the numbers in terms of the results. And uh, less and little consideration is given to the process itself. I think moving forward, uh, this is now a lesson to Africa, particularly the courts in Africa, that they have to be bold enough, they have to be independent enough to begin to scrutinize the entire process, the process of election in their totality. That's Peter Lingo, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in Kenya, talking to Ntlantla Mashangu. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Seventeen eighteen Central African time, you are still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spomelo Lezondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Remember that you can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter, or you can find us on email. You can send us emails on info at Channel Africa. The BRICS group of five major emerging economies have called for a reform of the United Nations and tougher measures against terrorist groups while denouncing North Korea's latest unclear test, nuclear test rather. The heads of states from Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa have gathered in China for the group's ninth summit held under the theme A Stronger Partnership for a Brighter Future. The five have also pledged to work together 
further to improve global economic governance to foster a more just and equitable international border. Channel Africa spoke to Sunusha Naidu, Senior Research Associate at the Institute for Global Dialogue, about the significance of the summit and some of the key issues discussed. Well, I think as a collective, um, the BRICS has managed, they have managed rather, to essentially consolidate themselves in terms of the um, the formation of the New Development Bank, which recently, not so long ago, uh, inaugurated the African Regional Center, which was about two or three weeks ago. And then, of course, they've also set out uh, a, a, a set of loans to the five uh, to the five countries, four countries, uh, in, in in terms of in, uh, renewable energy and infrastructure. But I think in terms of the setting out of the contingency reserve arrangement as well, they've essentially started to consolidate and coalesce as a group. So I think from that perspective, um, they've kind of come together in a, in a much more real way as a grouping that has consolidated their footprint. Now, what is the significance of China hosting this year's event, Sanusha? Do you think there is more to read into this? Is this perhaps China's latest chance to position itself as a bulwark of globalization in the face of uh, the U.S. President Donald Trump's America First agenda? Well, I think that firstly, we're going to see this as a cycle of summits. So we're in the third cycle of summits. I mean, we're in the second cycle of summits, rather. And we're coming towards the end of the second cycle. And so in that context, it's not it's, it's China's uh, posi- it's China's turn to host the, um, the, 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 the BRICS summit and, and to basically serve as president of, 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 or, or chairperson of the summit. Next year, South Africa would take on that position. So in terms of a much more technical approach, I think it's China's, it's within the whole cycle of summits and, 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 and the whole uh, ordering of who hosts the summits in terms of going forward. China's significance, I think, cannot be ignored in this context of the BRICS because obviously it's that country that has uh, economic largess, it, it, it's got economic gravitas, and also remembering that we are in a world where it, there's a lot of uncertainty and unpredictability and to unpredictability. So China is also trying to ensure that it gets its own programs up and running. Uh, and we've seen that apart from the fact that it's, 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 been, it's, it's, been, it's been integral to, say, the BRICS Bank and so forth, it's also set up its own institutions, its funding institutions, like the, like the uh, Asia in Infrastructure Investment Bank. It's got its own Silk Road Fund, which is a really big uh, fund in the context of China's, ro- China's development program of or One Belt, One Road, which cuts across the Asia-Pacific region into, Africa, into, into the East Coast and Horn of Africa, across the Middle East, into uh, the southern Mediterranean uh, of Europe, in other words, uh, also landing in, in, in Germany and so forth. This is a massive project for China, and so hosting the BRICS gives it that gravitas as well to try and find the niche points, the pulse points, in order to pursue its own interests, and I think we can't ignore that. Now, BRICS leaders are also joined at the summit by observer countries uh, that is thailand mexico egypt guinea and tajikistan and they are discussing what is known as BRICS plus plan uh, to possibly expand the block to new members do you think BRICS expansion is about to become a reality the Chinese are testing the waters. They, they 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 actually put this out previously, but I don't think it's actually a new uh, a new initiative or a new endeavor. If you remember correctly, South Africa was the first country when it hosted the summit in 2013 that announced an 
an outreach partnership. So I think, when we, and then of course, this was subsequently followed by Brazil, Russia, India, and so forth. And so I think if you take that in context, we could actually then argue that this is an extension of that context, but, but China is not calling it a, a regional or an outreach partnership. It's actually kind of consolidating that partnership in terms of how it wants to now not just locate it within its region and within, within its neighborhood, but it's expanded it to Mexico, Egypt, as you, like, as you rightly mentioned. Countries that could play a very significant role in how China sees its own relationship uh, with, from, a, from a global perspective. I think what's critical as well is to ask ourselves why these countries were, cha- were chosen uh, in the sense that previously when, when, when the outreach partnership was done before, countries that were there were mainly from the regional neighborhood, like South Africa invited countries from within Southern Africa, but also from in Africa. China's gone beyond that one step further. And is this perhaps the way in which China seeks to consolidate its own positioning within the BRICS? which could be posed some very interesting uh, geopolitical questions for the other big countries. That is Sinusha Naidu, Research Associate at the Institute for Global Dialogue, on the line from Cape Town in South Africa, talking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Manjarare. I'm just wading through a small... It is 1725 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Pumela Lezondi. Please send us your tweets and emails. Now, thousands of members of Myanmar's Rohingya minority are continuing to flee across the border into neighboring Bangladesh. They're escaping a military crackdown after Rohingya militants attacked police positions a week ago. According to UN estimates, around 87,000 people have fled and human rights groups accuse the Burmese army of atrocities and indiscriminate violence. Claims the Burmese government deny, but its leader Aung San Suu Kyi is facing criticism for not speaking out against the violence. The BBC's Sanjoy Majumdar has the latest from Bangladesh, Myanmar's border. I'm just wading through a small stream very close to the border between Myanmar and Bangladesh. There are paddy fields on either side and just ahead hills beyond which is Myanmar's Rakhine state. I just met a small group of Rohingyas, three villages, one of them's carrying a chicken. Another one's carrying household items. Just ask them how many people are on the other side. And they're just saying there are many, many people, thousands, still waiting to cross. My name is Shakin Oruddin. We've been walking for four days. We had brought some rice, but it got over on the first night. We haven't eaten since. We have nothing left. Our houses have all been burned down. People are just being cut to pieces. My neighbor was beaten and then burned alive. This is one of the main crossings through which the Rohingya refugees are coming into Bangladesh now. And a huge group has just walked in. And by the side of a steep hill, on the other side is Myanmar. 
and entire families, men, women, children. There's even an old woman being carried in a makeshift stretcher. They're all making their way through the hill, through the forests, and then wading through the streams. It's exhausting, but at least it means that they're alive. It's taken us seven days of walking through the mountains to get here. My brother was killed. They shot him in the chest. I couldn't even dig him a proper grave. I somehow managed to bury him just outside our house and then I left. It's hard to verify these accounts. No one is being allowed inside Myanmar's Rakhine state. But plumes of smoke can be seen from the Bangladesh side, presumably from the burning villages. The Myanmar authorities allege the violence is being orchestrated by Rohingya militants who had carried out a series of coordinated attacks on police posts over a week ago. But the refugees say they are the ones being attacked and so they are streaming into Bangladesh leading to a massive humanitarian crisis. Melissa Fleming is the chief spokesman for the United Nations Refugee Agency. We are hugely concerned about the humanitarian situation when we are seeing you know, growing numbers just in the past two weeks, almost 60,000 people crossing into Bangladesh, up to 20,000 people amassed on the Bangladesh border in a terrible state. Very many women, children, elderly, with nothing but the clothes on their back, nothing to eat. The main refugee camps in Bangladesh are now overflowing. Fresh Rohingya arrivals are sheltering in schools, mosques and by the side of the road. They've managed to cross their first hurdle, making it here alive. Now they have to try and survive. There was the voice of the BBC's Sanjoy Machumder reporting them. It is now time for your news headlines here on LNCNT. The United Nations has accused the government of Burundi of crimes against humanity and urges the ICC to urgently open a case. Kenya President Uhuru Kenyatta and his principal political opponent, Rela Odinga, have started vigorous campaigns in various parts of the country to persuade the electorate to vote for them. And the American ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, urges the UN Security Council to take the toughest stance possible against North Korea. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Please send us your tweets uh, in, in whichever part of Africa that you're in or you can find us on info at channelafrica.co.za on email. That is info at channelafrica.co.za on email. You can also find us on SMS as well. We are on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero.
Now, South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, or DA, says the resignation by the chief executive officer of the UK-based international public relations company, Bell Pottinger, James Henderson, should not be seen as heroic. Henderson's resignation at the weekend comes after his firm became embroiled in an, in accusations rather that it was involved in a campaign in South Africa for a company owned by the powerful Gupta family, which allegedly involved slurs and paid for protests over white monopoly capital to draw attention from the Gupta's alleged close links to the country's president, that is Jacob Zuma. The DA says if Henderson had truly appreciated the implications of their propaganda in South Africa, he would repay the 1.2 million US dollars his company earned from the Gupta family. DA spokesperson Pumzile Van Dam joins us on the line to talk more about this now. Hello Pumzile. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, Pumzile, the 1.2 million US dollars does not go to his po- into his pockets, does it? The 20 million, because uh, it was 100,000 uh, pounds over 12 months, uh, which roughly is about 20 million rand. Yeah, 1.2 uh, million dollars. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. I thought you were talking in rand. Yes, we believe that that money um, must be repatriated in essence to South Africa and donated to charities and NGOs that work in the sector of uh, protecting media freedom as well as you know reconciliation. We believe this would uh, be a demonstration of goodwill and admission of uh, guilt by Bell Pottinger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but his resignation is, uh, is taking some of the blame or does it not show that it's taking some of the blame according to you, does it? Well, Jim, James Henderson still owns uh, 40% of Bob Pottinger and is a majority shareholder. So his relinquishing of the role of CEO does not really hurt him at all. I mean, he still uh, owns the majority share of Bob Pottinger. For us, what he needed to do was, one, pay back the money, and two, um, reveal the full details of the uh, the contract that they signed with Dupizana Zuma, President Zuma's son, and the Gupta family. You've also said or called for a full disclosure of the nature of the contract it entered into with President Jacob Zuma. Why do you want full disclosure of this? Well, because South Africans need to know what was the nature of the uh, campaign that was undertaken. They need to know who the individuals were involved in South Africa beyond um, just to design a Zuma. We need to know full details of what happened, which uh, Twitter accounts were used, what the tactics, tactics were. We believe that the South African public, once they have this information, they'll be able to um, begin to be in the process of, of moving forward. But we need to have full disclosure before we, we can do that. Uh, Pumzele, the report did say that senior management did not know about uh, some of the campaigns, but they had failed to put in place the appropriate safeguards that would have alerted them to what staff were doing. Um, you still, though, still think management should have taken um, a lot of the blame, even though the report does say that senior management would not have known about some of the campaigns. It's a £100,000 a month account. It's highly unlikely that uh, top management wouldn't know what's happening with an account that just brings in that much money every month. Mm. Um, now, how do you see tomorrow's findings by the Public Relations and Communications Association playing out? 
I do not want to preempt. We will wait and see what the um, sanction is, but we trust that it will be one that sends a strong message to the entire PR industry, not just in the UK, but globally, about uh, making sure that they keep to the ethical standards set by um, the organizations that they belong to. Um, Henderson, who is the largest shareholder, has gone on to say that he did not initiate and he wasn't involved in any of the Oak Bay work. Do you do you um, believe that? Um, well, I mean, let's wait and see what the PRCA says. But like I said, it's a hundred thousand pounds a month account. It's unlikely that the the top management would know what the nature of that account was, uh, what how it was being. Um, handled by the staff. Um, but yeah, let's wait for that PRCA report. Mm. Overall, how do you feel about the uh, developments that have taken place over the last couple of weeks in, in, in Britain? Sorry? How do you feel about the developments that have taken place over the last couple of weeks um, over in, in the UK at Bell Potton? Which, de- which developments? The developments um, coming from uh, pretty much the report um, and um, and now the resignation overall. What's your feeling on this? Yeah, I mean, like we said, we let the complaint with the PRCA. We're waiting for that report. I mean, that's the body we've reported it to and hopefully it will be a strong sanction. All right, Pumzile Fandam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Pumzile Fandam there is the spokesperson of the South African Democratic Alliance, which is the opposition party in South Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam. Kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia makande embalelo kina Miriam. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. 1738 Central African Time, you're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Engage us on social media. We are on Channel Africa One. Now, they're the men who fight Boko Haram militants, often armed with little more than sticks or homemade rifles. 25,000 vigilantes are playing a key role in Nigeria's war against the Islamist militant group. More than 600 members have been killed. Now, there are warnings that unless the men are given jobs, they could present a new security threat. The BBC's Martin Patience reports from the northeastern city of Maiduguri. We're at a checkpoint on the outskirts of the city. It's made from sandbags and there's a tin roof to protect them from the elements. There's four vigilantes in here. What's extraordinary is they've all got wooden guns, 
these are homemade rifles. In front of them are the fields and a road, a red road. And along this red road came several suicide bombers. The vigilantes in this checkpoint didn't know they were coming. It was late at night and five of them were killed at this very spot. It just gives you some idea of how dangerous it is for the vigilante groups operating to protect their communities. One of the vigilantes is Mustafa Musa. We never know when or how they'll come, whether they have guns or bombs. I'm not afraid. We can call on support. There are soldiers nearby. But the problem is that the enemy is well armed. And my gun only fires one round. The vigilantes can be a rowdy bunch. They're petty traders, civil servants and teachers, all of them volunteers. They man checkpoints to stop suicide bombers and sometimes accompany the military into the bush to attack Boko Haram bases. <laughs> Hundreds have been killed. They began as a force four years ago when Boko Haram threatened to overrun Maiduguri. In the city, they're viewed as heroes. This man says they gave their lives for both Muslims and Christians here. Whenever anything happens, he says, they're the first to respond. This woman says they show no signs of tribalism, that they always do the best they can and they need more support. I'm inside an abandoned office which has been commandeered by the vigilante groups. And on a whitewashed wall written in chalk is something that sums up their mantra. It says, forgiving a terrorist is left to God, but fixing their appointment with God is our responsibility. These groups don't mess around. They mean business. They've been accused of extortion as well as rape, and of carrying out extrajudicial killings. And now there is a growing fear that the vigilantes could turn into a militia that the authorities cannot control. Their commander, Lawan Jaffer, warns the situation is unsustainable. I'm appealing to the government to provide jobs to the vigilantes and to take care of the poor families of those who lost their lives to the cause. What will happen if these men don't get jobs? We're going to have problems with armed robbery and kidnapping because if a man has no job, he will do anything to survive. No one doubts the bravery of these men. They've helped put Boko Haram on the back foot. But unless their sacrifices are recognised, they could end up presenting a new threat. The report is by the BBC's Martin Patience. Thank you.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Your time is 17.44 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. It is now time for your economics with Wissani Matebula. Good evening, thanks. As Pumelele Akasha Mining says it will stop underground work at its flagship Tanzanian gold mine and cut its production guidance in the face of a, a confrontation between the industry and government. Shares in the FTSE 100 250 company plummeted 9%, making it the biggest decliner among an index of its peers. Akasha, majority owned by Berry Gold, says it will have to scale back operations at the Bullion Nulu mine and cut stuff as it coped with a government ban on exports of unprocessed ore imposed in March to encourage construction of a local smelter. The ban had left the build-up of ore inventory and cut revenue as the firm met taxes and other bills. South Africa has experienced a decline in domestic tourism for the past two years. Statistics South Africa released its 2016 Domestic Tourism Survey report indicating a drop in the total number of trips that travelers have taken. Day trips have decreased from 44 million in 2015 to 39 million in 2016. Overnight trips have meanwhile decreased from 45 million in 2015 and 43 million in 2016. The white population traveled almost twice as frequently than any other population group. Statistician General Padilli Hosle has contributed the decline to the tough economic conditions in the country. The main finding is that uh, there is a general decline in the domestic tourism over the past two years. And of course, it's driven largely by uh, reprioritization of consumer spending and, of course, uh, an economy uh, that is not uh, yielding uh, growth. Uh, see, uh, the level of unemployment in uh, South Africa and long-term unemployment under those conditions, uh, travel uh, will suffer. Russian exploration company Rosgeo will drill for gas off the southern coast of South Africa under a 400 million US dollar deal with PetroSA to help build the African country's reserves. The agreement comes against the backdrop of declining domestic gas reserves that have curtailed output at PetroSA's gas to liquid plant in Mosul Bay. The deal was signed on the sidelines of the BRICS block of developing nations meeting in Xiamen, China, and will see Rosgeo use seismic and drilling vessels to explore South Africa's south coast where total also had acreage meanwhile south africa has scooped two awards at the mozambique international trade fair known as fasm the country romped home with the best pavilion award while Kama Industries, a Johannesburg-based company producing audible and visual signaling devices, was voted the best exhibitor at FASM 2017, which took place the, at, the, at the weekend. Mutsibi Munaring reports.
The country was the center of attraction and the envy of about 30 countries at the Mozambican International Trade Fair, commonly known as FASIM, when it scooped the two awards at the ceremony hosted by Mozambican Prime Minister Mr. Carlos Agostino de Rascio. Johannesburg-based Kama Industries was voted the best exhibitor at the FASIM 2017. The High Commissioner of South Africa in Mozambique, Mr. Mandi Simpatwa, received the country's award on behalf of the country. Mutsibwa Manareng, Bombela. Angola's sole liquefied natural gas export project has entered into a multi-year sales deal that will see cargoes delivered to trading house Vitol around the globe. Vitol has already purchased many LNG cargoes from Angola's LNG. Chevron has 36.4% share in Angola's LNG, while Angolan state oil firm Sonangol has 22.8%. Other stakeholders include Total, BP and Eni. Financial indicators now. The dollar is trading at 12.93. South African rands at 10.01. Botswana Pula 9.09. Zambian Kwacha also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.84 to the euro. Finally, looking at commodities, gold is at $1,318. Platinum $994 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil at $52.50 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thank you very much, Wissani. It is now time for your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with your latest sports news at the Sawa. And starting off with football news, Nigeria's national football team, the Super Eagles midfielder John Ogu, says they 4-1 victory against the African champions, the indomitable Lions of Cameroon in the first leg of the 2018 FIFA World Cup is history. Ogu says much as they are happy with that result, their focus now is on tonight's second leg. The Eagles arrived in Yaoundé on Sunday afternoon for the clash at Stardi Omni Sports Amadou Adejo. Ogu says the second leg will not be easy. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be easy, you know, but we're, we're looking at going there to fight, you know. We know it's not going to be easy, you know. They, they'll be playing with their, with, their, with their fans behind them and everything. But, um, you know, we believe in ourselves, you know. We believe in, the, in, in our efforts and everything. So we go there, you know, we go there to fight and, and hopefully we'll come out with a good result. Guinea are out to back their second win over Libya as they meet in the second leg of the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier tonight at Stadi Mustafa Ben Janet in Monstersteer. Now Guinea are a motivated side as they managed to secure a 3-2 win at home last Thursday. Now heading to the return leg, their aim is to continue with the same application and get two wins over the North Africans. The West Africans remain placed in position third in Group A, with three points next to their name from one victory and will be gunning for their second win of the group. The 3-2 loss on Thursday leaves the Mediterranean Knights sitting at the bottom of the table in the group with zero points from three losses. Meanwhile, the much-anticipated Confederation of African Football Delegation meeting expected in Kenya this coming Thursday 
to do a final assessment of the country's preparedness for the 2018 Africa Championship Tournament has been cancelled. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has more on the story. The decision has been informed by an unprecedented decision by the country's Supreme Court to nullify the presidential election calling for a fresh poll within 60 days since September 1st. The decision has heightened fear that Kenya will lose the hosting rights after CAF announced that the Federation's first vice president, Constantine Omari, will instead land in Kenya on Sunday, 10th of September, to assess the political atmosphere before advising on need for grounds inspection. On to rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kotsia says he signed Willem Bach on a tour of Australia and New Zealand with a lot of confidence after beginning the Castle Lager Rugby Championship with two wins against Argentina. Now Kotsia says it is important for his side to remain humble and grounded and continue to work hard. The Springboks face Australia in Perth on Saturday. No, I think uh, you're 100% right. What we do need is all the uh, uh, sort of confidence to go on an Australasia leg that we, we can have. And, 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 and as a team, I think we in a, in a good place. Uh, we had a chat about that uh, yesterday and today. We've had a great session yesterday and also this morning with a split with the forwards. Uh, fantastic uh, session as well. I think the big thing for this team is uh, it has obviously has grown a lot uh, over the five five test matches. But uh, and I said it, it's a it's a big challenge for us over there. The, the one thing is we've got to stay grounded and humble because when we are uh, in that space that we've been you know really down to earth and just do the hard work that we've done continue to do the hard work. I think that's key for us. Humility is, is a key ingredient and uh, we have no option and alternative than to work hard. And finally, in athletics news, the 2017 standard chartered Nairobi math and plans are in turmoil should the independent electoral and boundaries commission of Kenya decide to schedule the repeat of the presidential election on a date within that of the last week of October. The organizers of the annual international marathon had picked Sunday, the 29th of October, as the day for the race. Now here is Michael Hughes, organizer of the marathon. It's about three months in the development. Um, together with a number of partners as as you can imagine putting a plan of this magnitude together involves Athletics Kenya, the sponsors um, the city of Nairobi and the city of Nairobi includes all the stakeholders you can't just go and close the roads without uh, doing it without a, a, a proper plan. And those are sports news at the SAR. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.54 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Let's look at our top stories. A sharp reaction from Kenyan President. Criticism of the judiciary. The BRICS group of five major emerging economies call for a reform of the United Nations. 
And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumalele Zondi, producer Luanda Mahoma, technical producer Catherine Malika, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za on email, info at channelafrica.co.za, SMS us on plus 27-796-957-930. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Tweet us on Channel Africa One. We leave you with Ten Fingers by AKA and Anati. <laughs> Oh